Welcome to Speaking Out. We're mainly discussing land rights and economic empowerment. Aboriginal enterprises in mining, exploration and energy. to talk a little bit about uh, Indigenous constitutional recognition. Those With Larissa Berendt. It's a fresh view coming on. ABC Radio. It's about having a system that's non-judgmental. And if you can do it right for Indigenous people, you can do it right for all peoples entering the health system. And so our concerns for AIDA were really highlighted in instances with this COVID crisis where we had a failure of a delivery of culturally safe services and that was an incredibly disturbing report to have coming back because of the impacts that that could potentially have on people in the COVID crisis. Indigenous doctors call out allegations of racial bias in the medical sector, concerned over the impact on Aboriginal patients seeking COVID-19 tests. This is Speaking Out. I'm Larissa Berendt. Joining me to discuss the hot issues of the week are poet, lawyer and senior researcher at the Jumbana Institute, Alison Whitaker, and lawyer, researcher and PhD student, Lachlan McDaniel. The states and territories began the initial stages of lifting social distancing restrictions this week, but the process differs from one jurisdiction to the next, and we'll see some parts of the country enjoying greater freedoms than others from this weekend. Alison, the Victorian and New South Wales governments remain cautious in their approach to this. How have you found the response from our state and federal leaders? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a a sense that people are being bombarded with contradictory information from a lot of sources, and that's made it difficult to comply with kind of this strange new patchwork of regulation that we deal with every day. I think we really look to our peers to see right now kind of what conduct is both responsible, ethical and legal. The tension, I guess, in that is that you want a a nationwide coordinated response, but what's happening looks so very different on the ground, depending on the context. Lachlan, what about you? And particularly, do you think the balance between the health crisis and the economic crisis is right? I think that greater emphasis should be placed on health than the economy. And I think that we have found that balance in the past few weeks. However, now I'm seeing the discussion is slowly starting to move more towards the economic concerns of COVID-19 and how we're going to recover with the Australian budgets. I think that we have reached a good balance. I think Australia has been praised for its response to coronavirus by other nations across the world. But I think that we're still very much in the dark about the impact that this is all going to have on people's health, physically and mentally, and the future of the economy. Alison, you've done a particular focus on the impact of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in the prisons. What were the issues that you were identifying and what are some of the community-led initiatives around that? Yeah, right now there's a a campaign called Clean Out Prisons and a national open letter that's been coordinated by First Nations families who either have loved ones currently inside or who have lost loved ones inside. So I encourage anybody listening to go and read that open letter. It's up on the ALS New South Wales ACT website. The thing that is really frightening about prison conditions is that they are conditions within which a virus like coronavirus can really thrive. 
they are overcrowded, that people have very limited control inside over how they protect themselves. There's, from what we understand, a lack of soap being distributed and being accessible to people inside. These are really frightening conditions. And when you see things like what happened in Victoria last week with some confusion around testing regimes and people returning positive or ambiguous results, as well as what we saw in Queensland last week with three deaths in custody in the spate of 36 hours. It's a really terrifying time for people in prison right now and for those who love them. And the main call, I suppose, that I would put to anybody listening is that what's really important is that we get people out. Lachlan, you've been working across a range of policy areas and have been doing a bit of work around some work going forward about Aboriginal workforce. What are the challenges you see in finding a balance between a safe return to the workplace and protecting the health of workers? As we know, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people face more often health complications and ongoing health complications that are exacerbated by COVID-19. So the challenge of returning to the workplace is doing it in a safe way. We have many of our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander workers being aged 60 and 65 and over, and this has been identified as a particular health risk. And going back into areas like health or education, working with children who don't quite understand the impact of coronavirus, how it's transmitted and what we need to do to prevent it is really challenging. So I think that we have to have a think about how Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders are impacted by a return to work. Alison, obviously there's a lot of thought being given to the long-term economic outlook with predictions of a forecast of an overall cost of $360 billion. So something that's going to be with us for a long, long time. How convinced are you that it's going to just be a matter of tax reform that will go the longest way towards getting the country back on track? (laughs) I'm not convinced at all that tax reform is where it's at. We've had a really prolonged period of enduring tax reform, both here and in kind of comparative jurisdictions like the US. They don't seem to have done what we were told they were designed to do, which was to redirect money into the economy for the benefit of people who are not the mega rich. And it is difficult to see how something of this scale as a global pandemic and definitely a recession maybe a depression, how that's going to be reversed by accelerating into stage three of the already scheduled tax cuts. And Lachlan, from your perspective, Josh Frydenberg remains committed to ending the JobKeeper program and extra measures around the JobSeeker program within six months. Just following up on Alison's reflections about the long-term economic impact, do you think it's realistic to be stopping those programs at that time? I think that it certainly can be stopped at that time, but I don't think that it necessarily should. I think that people have made arrangements to be receiving those payments until that point in time and cutting them short almost adds a bit of a double jeopardy to someone who is relying on those payments at the moment. In some households are having both parents have lost their jobs and kids are going without at the moment. So I think that if you've said that payments are to be expected up until the end of September, that you should honour that promise. Alison, 
The employment figures are expected to remain above 5% at least until 2024. But the arts and entertainment sector has been severely hit, as has tourism and hospitality. And then we've got the latest reports indicating that universities are asking academics to take a pay cut to help save further jobs. What have you been hearing? I've been hearing just that. What's happening kind of on the front line is that what looks like a boom period for the retail industry is actually kind of translated into people working in really unsafe conditions. I have people I love who work in retail and it's very much, I guess, a a point about them being on the front line. For arts workers, this has been absolutely catastrophic. Only amplifying, I guess, that impact is that a lot of arts workers don't fit into the eligibility criteria of JobKeeper and find themselves effectively without support from the government at this time. Uh, Lachlan, obviously this has had an impact on every aspect of our lives, but I was just wondering if you could share with us, as somebody who's doing a PhD at the moment, what has been the impact of this health crisis on the work you're doing? Yeah, so at the moment I'm doing my PhD. I'm in my third year of study, and I'm also working at John Bunner's Indigenous Research Unit as an academic intern. And the impact of coronavirus has been extensive on my work. So I was in the middle of doing field research once coronavirus hit, which meant that I had to return to my ethics application. Essentially, the guidelines were that we were banned from visiting people to undertake face-to-face research. And I support that measure. I mean, most of my participants are Aboriginal people who are over the age of 60 and are at extreme risk of coronavirus. So that was a huge impact, and I had to go back and completely rethink how I'm going to engage these people to undertake my interviews. Not being able to go out and visit is not the end of the world, but collecting people's personal stories about what I'm researching, cultural revitalization and the impact of colonisation on those cultural practices is a conversation that is a lot better when had face-to-face. So that's been very challenging in terms of getting the information I need to finish my research, but also, I suppose, looking to have an academic career at the end of my PhD. It's a bit of a challenging time when we're currently discussing academics taking pay cuts just to keep jobs to those that are already allocated. So it is quite a challenging time to be at the end of your studies and looking to move into tertiary education employment. Alison, you always have a lot of balls in the air, but one of those at the moment is actually the early stage of uh, PhD study. How has the health crisis impacted on the way that you're working and on your study? I'm lucky maybe compared to Lachlan in that I'm in the early stages of a PhD. So everything is much more malleable and adaptable. The pressure to collect data is just not there. But at the planning stage, which usually happens in the first six to eight months of a PhD, it's about trying to envision a future for the research. And it's difficult right now when you can't even predict what the next month is going to look like to lay out a plan for not only how you're physically going to do the research over the next period of time of your candidature, but whether that research is going to have an enduring relevance, whether it's going to make sense in the world that we have going forward. Lachlan, just picking up on something that you said about 
how you have had to rethink your pathway because you are close to the end of your studies. What are you hearing from other students? Obviously, the COVID-19 pandemic has thrown a lot of plans into disarray, but for people who've been on a pathway of study into a career, it's a particularly difficult time. Amongst your peers, what sorts of discussions are you having in terms of how you're rethinking the future? Are people still positive that once we're through this period, you know, there'll be some pathway to return to or or is this really a game changer? Most of the conversations I'm having with people are talking about how COVID-19 has been a game changer. I think it's been a game changer in the tertiary education sector, but I think that that's across the board. We've had to quickly readapt the way that we work and that's provided some challenges, but it's also provided some insights. So I'm seeing a lot more, particularly Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who have had to relocate to Sydney to undertake studies and then to enter the workforce using those skills. They're talking about returning back home and being able to work remotely. So that's a positive, I suppose, outcome of coronavirus and the way that we've had to adjust. But generally, people are also talking about how it's going to be a more challenging environment for people to leave their studies and to find employment in an area that they were hoping to engage with, having undertaken the studies that they have. You're listening to Speaking Out. I'm Larissa Barron and my guests this evening are Alison Whitaker and Lachlan McDaniel. Modelling from the University of Sydney has warned that the suicide rate in Australia could blow out by as much as 50% on current levels as a result of the COVID-19 crisis. The federal government has created a new role of Chief Medical Officer for Mental Health to address the issue. Alison, what was your reaction to this development? Yeah, it's such a shame that it's taken a catastrophe like this to really address mental health in a really serious way. We, of course, know that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people are disproportionately impacted by suicide and that it is so much more complex than just a picture of mental health, but also a picture of people's material circumstances and the respect that they receive in our society. It's exciting. It's an early development. I think it's one that's been needed for a long time, but it's also going to be one that has to be undertaken in tandem with measures that tangibly improve people's lives throughout the pandemic. It's a holistic question. It's not just a question of mental health. Lachlan, we already know that First Nations communities are disproportionately represented in this area. Do you think the creation of this new role and this renewed focus on mental health will make an impact on those figures? I'm hopeful that it will. I think that we haven't placed enough emphasis on mental health and the uh, support services that are required for people who are going through mental health complications and issues. So I can't say this will be a magic bullet, but I certainly think more insights, more data, more analysis and more support for the issue of mental health and the address of it through medical services is a positive step. And if you or anyone you know needs help, you can contact Lifeline on 13 11 14, Beyond Blue on 1300 22 46 36 or Black Rainbow via their homepage blackrainbow.org.au. With all the changes we've seen come about through the COVID-19 pandemic, there's been some speculation that we now have a chance as a society to rethink how we operate and the values we collectively hold. Alison, do you believe we could reshape society following this pandemic? 
Oh, of course. If we're really determined about it, as conditions ease, it's going to be easier and easier for us to slip back into old ways of doing things. One thing I've been really heartened by in this pandemic and also the lockdown response that we've had has been the development of something called mutual aid networks, which are about seeing need in our communities and directly addressing it with one another. So being able to build those interlinked networks of support in local areas, particularly in metropolitan local areas where people can often be really socially isolated, is really exciting. And I think we need to work to ensure that those connections keep happening as things get a little easier in the day-to-day for us. And what about you, Lachlan? What changes would you like to see as we come out of this pandemic in terms of perhaps some structural or cultural changes going forward? Yeah, absolutely. I think that COVID-19 has had some positive impacts on the way a lot of Australians act towards each other, as Alison was pointing out. But also I think that it's been a reminder for how lucky a lot of Australians are not being able to go to the supermarket and get the exact item that you're looking for has been a bit of a wake-up call for a lot of Australians. And I think it's been a bit of an insight into how other people live not only in our own country but across the world, that there isn't a supermarket there that's got exactly what you want when you want it. So hopefully I think that it will instill a bit of a sense of humility within us in Australia and just make us realise how lucky a lot of us have it. Now, last weekend saw Mother's Day celebrations take a very different form than what's traditionally been the case. How did you mark the day, Alison? Uh, So my mother and I had a wonderful long chat over Facebook Messenger and we've really kind of lent into uh, having online time together. So playing with Snapchat filters, doing lots of very strange things, uh, playing video games together online. It was very much a Mother's Day on the terms of what I would have liked it when I was 14. But, you know, 13 years too late, it's still pretty good. (laughs) Yes, I've I've taught my mother to Zoom, so that's been a bit of an achievement too. What about you, Lachlan? How did you mark Mother's Day? I did a video call with mum, which was not nearly as nice as previous Mother's Day. So there was a chat. We both had a cup of tea and a bit of a talk together. But, uh, yeah, it was a little bit sad, but, yeah. Still, nonetheless, it was very nice to celebrate with her. Now, just finally tonight, before we let both of you go, Alison, you recently edited the anthology Firefront, which will be featured on Speaking Out Sister Program Away. And I hope you might be able to give us a quick recital from this exciting new anthology that you've put together of First Nations poetry and essays. Can you give the listeners a bit of a taste of what we can expect? Absolutely. I'll give you a reading from the introduction. Firefront features 53 First Nations poets and five First Nations essayists on the power of poetry. It's a cliche to say that Indigenous poetry is powerful. From where does that power come? Like Firefront, does it come from challenging and subverting the English language or the poetic forms and traditions of the West? Or does it come from creating space? for other ways of thinking and rethinking and returning to proper thought? Does it nurture its Indigenous readers? In this collection, you will find 53 poems fueling, making space for, depriving, reshaping, undermining and doing power in every way. What they have in common is why they do it. 
for the emancipation of First Nations. Well, thank you, Alison, and thank you, Lachlan, as well. My guests this evening, my fabulous guests, have been poet, lawyer and senior researcher at the Jambana Institute, Alison Whitaker, and lawyer, researcher and PhD, Lachlan McDaniel, also at the Jambana Institute. And you can hear more from Alison Whitaker and some of the poets whose work is featured in Firefront, a new anthology of First Nations poetry and essays, next Saturday, the 23rd of May at 6pm. It's the second part of Away's Black Poetry Special with Daniel Browning, and the first part is online at abc.net.au slash rn and just find Away in the program menu. You're listening to Speaking Out. It just comes down to showing, sharing you know, respecting the world from an Indigenous perspective on ABC Radio. This is Speaking Out on ABC Radio, Radio National, Radio Australia on podcast and the ABC Listen app. I'm Larissa Berendt and if you like what you're hearing, why not rate us on your app and that way other people can find us and hear our stories as well. For months now, politicians and medical experts have been stressing the need for greater public testing of COVID-19 in efforts to contain the spread of the virus through the community. But allegations of racism and bias in the medical sector may be turning First Nations patients away. The issue has been taken up by the country's peak Indigenous Doctors Association and you'll hear from them shortly. But right now, a track from the Brisbane-based rock band The Medics. This song is called Joseph. Straight, little boy. 
That was the track Joseph by The Medics. It was featured on their second EP, This Boat We Call Love, released in 2010. The EP also saw The Medics take home the Deadly Award for Band of the Year. This is Speaking Out. That's the key to it all, keeping connected to country. On ABC Radio. An increase in the number of people testing for COVID-19 has been praised by politicians and medical experts as the number of recorded cases continues to fall. But it hasn't been all good news with allegations of racial bias within the health system after an Aboriginal man in New South Wales was denied priority testing because of his appearance. Further allegations of racial profiling occurred in a Western Australian hospital with comments allegedly made that Aboriginal patients only get the virus because they don't wash their hands. The incidents have highlighted the importance of ensuring Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people have access to culturally safe health care. Dr Chris Raller-Baker is an ophthalmologist and president of the Australian Indigenous Doctors Association and Monica Barrelitz-McCabe is the CEO and they both join me now. Welcome to Speaking Out. Chris, we might just start with you. Can you tell us where you grew up? Thanks very much for having me on. I grew up in Brisbane, in the southern suburbs of Brisbane, and went to school there and then went to University of Newcastle. And what led you on the path to studying medicine? My mum was one of the very early healthcare workers, Aboriginal healthcare workers, actually, in the early 1970s. And as I was growing up, she had said, look, you should look into healthcare. There are lots of great careers. And as I went through school, I did very, very well through school. And medicine came up on the radar. Mum actually worked with one of our very first Aboriginal doctors in Brisbane. And I met up with him when I was in about grade 10 and had a conversation about the possibility of doing medicine. And so I decided to do medicine and went from there. Like I said, I went to the University of Newcastle. So I moved straight down after school and did my medical degree. And why ophthalmology? Oh, look, I probably am terribly biased, but ophthalmology is the, uh, the best specialty in medicine. But very early on in my medical student career, I thought long and hard about what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. And I'd always enjoyed the idea of surgery, but also internal medicine. And, and there aren't many areas in medicine that can offer you such a wide scope of work. And I very, very quickly settled on ophthalmology. It's very competitive to get into because it's, you know, it is such a great job. And it was very much a dream. And uh, as it turned out, I was successful in, in applying for the training program. And, and here I am. And what are some of the particular issues Indigenous people have with optical and eye health? So there's a lot of work done in Indigenous ophthalmology in Australia and the College of Ophthalmologists, as well as many individual ophthalmologists and organisations like the Fred Hollows Foundation, are putting a lot of work into improving Indigenous eyes. The areas of concern are what are called refractive errors, so errors that can be corrected with spectacles, which we work very closely with optometrists to do. Uh, and from the ophthalmic perspective, we have cataracts, and diabetes are two largely reversible areas of blindness that can be addressed, as well as the scourge of trachoma that we're working on to eliminate in this country. And Monica, let's turn to you now. Where did you grow up? 
I grew up in uh, Darwin in the Northern Territory, so Darwin um, has been my home until recently when I moved to Canberra. And what drew you to working in health? So I started working in health for the Department of Health and Ageing quite some time ago. From there, I was introduced to Aboriginal community-controlled health organisations and decided to start working in the community-controlled sector. And I guess my uh, journey with health continued from there, uh, working with Menzies and then also more recently before AIDA with Flinders University in in the medical program here in the Northern Territory. So trying to increase the number of doctors across the Northern Territory, but also Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander doctors coming through the program. Why is an organisation like AIDA so important? I think AIDA is very important for all of our doctors and our students uh, who are coming through the program to advocate on behalf of not just our doctors and our students, but for improved health outcomes for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. By growing the number of doctors across Australia, we're hoping to make a contribution to you know, better healthcare outcomes for our people, culturally safe environment, working with colleges and universities to provide culturally safe environment, and practitioners who will be reflective around culturally safe practices when they're in the working environment. Chris, what were some of your key concerns when news first came out about COVID-19? The key concerns around COVID-19 for Australia as a whole were the same as what they were for overseas. We've been very fortunate that those concerns haven't borne out at this point, and we, we hope that they won't. Specifically in the Indigenous context, we were very, very concerned, not only because of the effects that we would see more widely, but Indigenous people were thought to be at higher risk because of the social determinants of health, so access to clean running water, issues around overcrowding, issues of socioeconomic disadvantage, as well as the fact that COVID as a virus targets individuals with chronic disease. And diabetes, heart disease, blood pressure, all afflict the Indigenous populations at higher rates than the mainstream population. And so for those reasons, we were very, very concerned about the impact it would have on Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. Monica, how has AIDA responded to the health crisis? What specific strategies have you been working on? So with AIDA, we were invited to be a a member of the National Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Group on COVID-19. So in putting into the development of the management plan for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and communities... We've been asking our members to help develop informational videos, contributing to the national campaign around stopping the spread. We've also released a number of statements, one of them which was around racism and the possibility of higher levels of racism if we you know, saw what we were projected to see initially and making sure that people were aware that racism is not to be tolerated in the healthcare system. A number of other things that we've done, we're supporting our members with peer support meetings twice a week and we're working with the four other workforce peaks who are Natsua, IHA and Katsunam around delivering webinars around self-care, racism and uh, various other topics and developing toolkits for Aboriginal health professionals as well as posters for communities to use around their services. And Chris, AIDA raised concerns over the equitable delivery of services in testing for COVID-19. What sorts of things need to be done to address racial bias in the health system more widely? 
Early on in the COVID crisis, we had a number of our members reporting the behaviours that earlier in this program you alluded to. The bigger picture that Indigenous peoples have been asking for for a very, very long time is a system that understands the peculiarities of Indigenous health, but more widely addresses understandings around cultural safety. Monica's already mentioned cultural safety as a topic and has given some detail about that. In essence, what it is, it's about having a system that's non-judgmental. And if you can do it right for Indigenous people, you can do it right for all peoples entering the health system. And so our concerns for AIDA that we've had for quite a long time were really highlighted in instances with this COVID crisis where we had a failure of a delivery of culturally safe services uh, or reports of that in particular areas around the country. And that was an incredibly disturbing report to have coming back because the impacts that that could potentially have on people in the COVID crisis. If it was really to take and people were fearful of attending uh, health systems, then we were very concerned that the impacts would be much, much worse than what they were already expected to be. Monica, I might just draw you out a little bit on this topic because obviously talking around issues of racial bias in the system and the need to create better spaces for Aboriginal people and Torres Strait Islander people within that system does lead to one of the reasons why it's so important to have Aboriginal healthcare professionals, Torres Strait Islander healthcare professionals and particularly doctors. And I was just wondering from your perspective as the CEO of AIDA, how do you explain to people the difference that actually having Aboriginal doctors makes in this particular space? Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander doctors make an impact on our community because our people want to see, you know, there's Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander doctors in their services. They feel comfortable accessing. They feel that they can go there, talk to that doctor and be comfortable in an environment um, where there's no judgment, they feel safe and they're going to get equitable treatment. Chris, there's been quite a lot of focus on the particular issues facing remote Aboriginal communities and obviously there continues to be concern around things like food security in those areas. But I was just wondering from your perspective as a doctor, do you think enough's being done in urban communities and regional centres where we have very, very large Aboriginal communities? Do you think that they have the level of support that's needed? That's a good question. A lot of the focus, interestingly, in Indigenous health is around rural remote Fortunately, because of that focus, we've avoided COVID getting into any rural or or remote community. So that's a win. The numbers that we do have, though, and they are relatively low, I think last count they're in their 50s, those numbers in Indigenous populations were in urban, rural and metro areas. A long, long time ago, I worked on the south side of Brisbane in the Indigenous Health Service, and one of the problems there was the focus was on rural or remote And it proved difficult at times, actually, to get resources for our metropolitan populations. So by no means is the focus on rural remote, you know, a a new issue. And it's not to downplay the needs for rural remote. It's absolutely essential that we get the services out there. In terms of food supply, for the bigger centres, it's not been so much of a problem. There are some reports coming in from our members in smaller country towns that access not just to food but other supplies has been made more difficult because of supply chain strains and that is a concern. But at this point, they seem to be getting supplies through. But as I said earlier, it's not to downplay, it's not to undercut 
the focus on rural remote. Rural remote is critical because of the isolation issues and we have delivered very, very well on that. In terms of our more urbanised rural areas, particularly up and down the east coast, there are difficulties, but to the best of our knowledge, those populations still have supplies coming through. I just wanted to focus a little bit on another aspect of the COVID-19 issue, Monica. Obviously, we're looking at it in terms of the health crisis, but the other concern is that it might affect educational pathways. And I was just wondering if you have had any sense of whether or not going forward, there's going to be an impact on the number of Indigenous people who are now looking to become doctors or to, to study and what might be done to ensure that we're still getting that pipeline. We haven't had any uh, indication so far to say the numbers coming into universities or applying through the medical pathways will decrease, only time will tell. However, some universities do have good Indigenous entry pathways and if they continue to support those pathways, hopefully we'll maintain our numbers. We'll need to look at real strategies if the impacts with the medical deans as well as AIDA, if we do start to see an impact of COVID on the numbers coming into universities. The other issue that we've been looking at and, you know, making sure our students are supported has been concern from final year students around graduation. So now that they're now starting to move back into universities, their anxiety around not being able to progress or their studies this year being impacted is starting to decrease and they're looking forward to their internship years. But we're not sure what the impact and the universities are working with us and we're getting feedback from our students that things are changing in terms of moving back from online into this classroom. But we just need to make sure that there's no impact on those who are already in the program and their progress through medical school. Of course, some of the really important work that AIDA's done over the last decade has been in working with the Council of Australian Medical Deans to really change the curriculum within universities to ensure that there is a much greater understanding of what it means to work with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander patients. And Chris, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit from your perspective about why that has been so important in terms of really addressing systemic racism within the system. It's funny, I was having a conversation earlier this morning actually with a colleague about the importance of diversity in a system and the importance of diversity of opinion. And he described it in his terms, he he grew up on a farm and he said, look, we're very, very good with farm animals of hybridising different animals to create a better animal, you know, a a better sort of a strain or plant or whatever it is. And, And He said ideas are the same, human ideas are the same, that by combining different perspectives and different thoughts, we can often arrive at a better solution than if there was just one way of thinking. And what he was getting at was the strength of diversity. And that's what individuals can bring to a system. By having a diverse system, by having a number of different backgrounds and a number of different ways of being and ways of thinking, we actually can end up with a, a stronger system and better solutions to the problems that present themselves to all of us. And that's the piece of the puzzle where Indigenous doctors can come in and where we can play a role. We've been in Western medicine where they first graduate in the early 1980s, but we actually have many, many thousands of years' worth of healthcare 
before contact with the British and a long, long history of understanding health systems and health paradigms. And there's a strength in that knowledge that can be brought to the mainstream system to help hybridise thought, hybridise ways of doing things, not only in terms of the delivery of medicine, but in terms of the behaviour and the way that we think about healthcare. Monica, I just want to pick up on a point that you just alluded to early on when you were talking about your career path. And you have worked in the community controlled health sector, and we've seen that sector do so much heavy lifting through this COVID-19 health crisis. So I was just wondering from your perspective, from all your experience, how important is the community controlled sector in health from what you've seen? So my experience with the community controlled sector has only been relatively new, given that we've got Redfern, I think, celebrating its 50th anniversary uh, next year. But I've always seen the importance in people being able to go to a service. It's where they can go in. It's the whole care, mind, body and spirit, basically, when you go into a community controlled sector. The heavy lifting that uh, Nacho and the community controlled sector has done through COVID has been amazing and being able to get our government to respond much quicker than um, perhaps if they weren't as organised and collaborative as they have been. Everyone's had to change how they live and work during this time. Chris, how has your life changed? There's been a lot of preparation in gearing up for the impact of COVID that we're waiting for. And so my life has changed in terms that some of my work has become less busy. So my clinical life, there aren't as many patients coming through for practical reasons like social distancing, but also because people just haven't been attending appointments that have been staying home. The practice itself has changed. Uh, There's been a lot more telehealth. A number of patients have had to be rescheduled if their appointments were urgent. And additionally, the response that Monica was referring to and, and our task force has actually created a lot of work too. So I've been no less busy, but busy in different ways, busy preparing for COVID, busy helping to be a part of the system to protect all of our communities and all of our society from COVID and advising when and where required to help keep on top of it. And, you know, I think we can all be very, very proud of where we are at the moment and what we've achieved as a country. And Monica, what about you, CEO of of an organisation? What sorts of changes have you had to implement and weather through this time? Getting through the changes that we've implemented is uh, being quite substantial in terms of, like many people, with uh, transitioning our workforce to working from home. I took the opportunity to take that literally and work from home in Darwin, but the connectivity that we've been able to achieve and the transition for the staff to working from home has been great. Also keeping connected with our members and starting up these forums through Zoom and GoToMeetings and all these other platforms that we've been using has been great. We've been very busy, COVID-focused, but we've been mindful to make sure that we're able to continue developing our programs. So it's very busy. One thing, we do save on time travel, but we use that time now face-to-face or virtual face-to-face. So it's been a very uh, interesting time with opportunities as well for the future, but being involved in key programs and development of a key document to be able to protect Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people or through this COVID virus has been very informative and an honour for me anyway. 
And just finally this evening, obviously life's changed. We're not going out as much, if at all, and people are spending a lot more time at home, a lot more time by themselves, a lot more time with close family. I guess one of the things we've noticed is that people have been learning a little bit about themselves during this time. And I was just wondering, Chris, what have you learned about yourself during this period? I find it because everything's been virtual and face-to-face, I've found that now if I talk on the phone without seeing someone, I feel quite rude. I know that sounds strange, but we've become so used to Zoom meetings and, you know, virtual meetings and FaceTiming. For me, that's been a big change. I, I like to actually chat to the person now as, as though they're there. And it's only a small thing, but it does feel funny now. Sort of, I'll be talking on the phone thinking, but I can't see this person. <laughs> so I guess it's the, the impact of technology on how we do things. And I, I hope, I hope that a lot of the meetings that we do, that going forwards, we don't have to travel as much and that perhaps we're more used to doing things virtually, you know, with a face on a screen rather than a metre in front of us. And what about you, Monica? What have you learned about yourself during this time? I've learned that it doesn't matter where we are, we can still connect. And it's been a really good thing to be able to connect with family and see how aunties and uncles and my dad have been able to adjust to the technology and probably feeling more connected than ever because we've been reaching out more during this period of time. And it's nice to enjoy some quiet time away from electronics, I have to say. It can be a bit much sometimes, so yeah. Well, Aid has done some really important work during this period and it's been great to have you both on with us tonight on Speaking Out to share that. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thanks so much for having us. Dr Chris Rallabaker is an ophthalmologist and president of the Australian Indigenous Doctors Association. Monica Barrelitz-McCabe is the CEO. Join the conversation online, facebook.com slash ABC Speaking Out. Look, listen and learn knowledge. To take us out tonight, we'll leave you with some music from Moju featuring Jolistics. This song is taken from their collaboration album, which they released last year, and is called Like Crazy. I wonder how we got here. I wonder how we ended up tearing everything apart Maybe we should stop here Tell me what do you need If it's blood I will bleed If you want me to leave I will leave Stairwell 
Moju with the track Like Crazy. That's the show for this week. Join us again next week when we profile the life and career of Uncle Jack Beetson, including his latest project, Improving Literacy Standards in Remote Communities and the Challenges Posed by the COVID-19 Pandemic. Well, it's just getting the message or receiving the message. And, and that's a big part of what we're doing now in Santa Teresa. The community out there at Ginger Porter, we stayed, we moved our staff into the community so they wouldn't have to go in and out. And that was at the request of the community for us to stay. It was a real toss-up of whether do we commence the second intake or do we suspend it for a while. But the community wanted us to stay. And, and I'm so glad we did on a number of fronts. But at, at the moment... Our staff and students out there are actually working with the clinic, working with the police, working with the governing body out there, and they've been putting together posters and really short films, getting the message out into the broader community. So they're assisting in that way. And the people with the low lips that are in the class can actually go out and they're out talking to the community about COVID-19 and how do you cope with it and getting that message out there. So it's really valuable. 
It'll be even more valuable, I reckon, when we're coming out of it, continue on on this literacy journey because it has such an enormous impact. When you can read and write, you just take it for granted. You just think everyone can. And a lot of people are so good at hiding it that you don't know that they can't. But it impacts on their life extraordinarily. People can't get jobs. They can't get a driver's licence. You know, as I said, they can't read the prescriptions. So it's really what we hope for with this is that when people learn to write, we're hoping that we can get enough people in a community to become more literate in English that they'll value learning. That's what we're trying to achieve. So it's not actually about getting individuals literate. It's about changing that characteristic that could possibly be a community of low literacy to a community that values learning. Speaking Out is on Facebook and you can email the program speakingout at abc.net.au. We would love to hear from you. I'm Larissa Berendt and this is Speaking Out. Speaking Out.